Race matters. 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 Welcome back to Race Matters for this week. You are joined by Sarah Khan. And I'm Darren Lasagas. Before we get into it all, as always, want to acknowledge and pay my respects to the lands on which we are meeting on today, and that is the lands of the Gadigal people. The Gadigal people have been a part of this beautiful land and landscape for 80,000 years before us. No matter where you go, city or bush, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land, and the Gadigal people are still a part of this beautiful place where we are meeting today and where FBI stands, and that is Redfern. So I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal elders, both past, present, and any emerging elders we have listening in with us here today. So, before we begin with our Race Matters, we just want to make sure people understand where our conversations um, are leading to. And what we really try to do and solidify here at Race Matters is try to make sure that all of our listeners, our people of colour listeners who are, you know, trying to figure out their own identities can kind of get a sense of affirmation about who they are, where they come from, and they can feel a safe space when they listen in to us today. And that's something we want to make really clear every week when we come into Race Matters is that you all know that this is a safe space for you and we're trying to have these yarns and conversations for you so you can feel confident in your own identity. Absolutely. And on today's show, we're going to be speaking with Nathan Sentence, uh, First Nations Project Officer at the Australian Museum. We're going to find out why it is so damn important uh, to have Indigenous ownership over the historical and cultural narratives conveyed uh, in institutions such as galleries, libraries, archives and museums. Uh, let's get to a song before we get there. Language warning. This is Mana with 666.
my constant urge to swerve into a motherly loving and inviting doom. There is no light at the end, and this fume-ridden tunnel doesn't stop. The nagging does. Pull the cord, and your driveway engulfs me. That was Manor with 666, and this is Race Matters on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. And with us today, we have Nathan Sentence asking some pretty big questions on have you really ever considered what gets put into museums and why and who gets to decide that? And Nathan Sentence joins us here today. He is a First Nations Project Officer of the Australian Museum in Sydney. His job is to ensure that the cultural and historical narratives being told in these spaces are about First Nations peoples. These spaces are galleries libraries, archives and museums. So Nathan, thank you for joining us. Mandan Guru, thank you for having me. Beautiful. So could you unpack, just to get straight into it, could you unpack a little more on what's involved in your role as a First Nations project officer at the museum? So so what I do at, in First Nations program is sort of do events and programs at the Australian Museum that get First Nations voices into the space. Um, one of the issues that the Australian Museum has had, and this is not just the Australian Museum, but all big cultural institutions, is they've basically been telling our narratives for us, for First Nations people. Um, there's always been Aboriginal cultural collections in these spaces, but their stories have been told by other people, and it's actually got a damaging effect. Um, first of all, it simplifies our culture, so people have a very simplistic idea. And the Australian Museum and other cultural institutions, the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the State Library of New South Wales, the National Museum, they're places of, people think that they're places of history, places of um, objectivity. So. Whatever they get told in these spaces, they believe is fact. So if they're t- hearing these lies about our culture, about our people, they actually will take that away and believe that themselves. So it's how those sort of like lies and stereotypes have sustained themselves over generations. Yeah, that's a big thing is that, you know, you can put the Australian Museum logo on anything and say your speech and anyone can take it as a pure cold hard fact. Mm. And that can really solidify a way of thinking about a certain group of people. Isn't yeah. That, yeah. yeah, it's true. It's, it's, it's very true, though. Like, um, like uh, one of the things I always... I say this in, like, talks I do and stuff is um, Truganini, um, a very famous Aboriginal woman in Tasmania, she was on display at the, ta- at the Hobart Museum until 1947. My, da- I got, my dad's quite old. My dad was 11 in 1947. I always think about, like, how my dad would be treated in the same country that bodies were being displayed. Mm. Like... That's how they thought about Aboriginal people, that it was okay to display our bodies. That has effects on like the people living at that time too, because mm. it's not just the um, inappropriateness and the shock of that and the trauma that's related to that. It's also basically that disrespect gets in the mind of young people who go to that museum and that disrespect then is how they treat Aboriginal people. If Aboriginal bodies are okay to display, then Aboriginal people are okay to disrespect, to... to um, yeah, to blame for lots of things, yeah. Yeah, it's setting a precedent, isn't it? Yeah. When did you uh, notice or when in the past had this kind of paradigm shifted in these spaces where people realise uh, it's one thing to be uh, quote-unquote scientific or factual about representations of Aboriginality and another thing to give an accurate representation? When did that kind of tick over? Or is it, I mean, it is still ticking over. Yeah, it's still changing. There's still heaps and heaps of work to do. There still is that idea that science has to be objective mm. when science has never been objective. It's the same with the um, museum. The museum, um, lots of museums proclaim to be objective, libraries proclaim to be objective, archives. But 
but really they've told one side of history so they've never been objective they've never been neutral and in fact um what happens is because of this um whiteness white history gets considered the default and makes it harder to well first of all it makes aboriginal history or aboriginal stories and perspectives seem like the other but also it makes our stories seem like they're radical so like you know i could tell a story about something and people will say like oh you're being radical and stuff like that but really i'm just doing what white historians have done for ages just my own perspective and that's sort of what's happened in museums and it still happens today like um there's still uh libraries archives and museums are still quite conservative um they're built on colonization so that, like even if there's cool people in those spaces there's still sometimes colonization in their bones and it's hard to change when the foundations colonization um to sort of rectify that mm. Yeah, that reminds me of um, National Geographic when they had to do their race month mm. last year in April, and the race only, month. Yeah, it was it was also like a it was a month on race. Right. Yeah. yeah. I know we should have been speaking on it, eh? Where was race matters then? We could have contributed a lot, but um, the um, editor in chief said we're not going to be able to go forward with this edition until we acknowledge our own wrongdoings in the past of. Um, portraying racist narratives mm. and kind of, you know, cementing a lot of stereotypes about these cultures that we are now investigating. And a lot of people look at them in really racial negative ways and we have a responsibility in the way people think like that. So we have to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think the museum is prepared to do something like that? I hope so. I really hope so. Because that, that was really powerful. Because like it does, it's basically is doing that thing, like the first step by basically saying we were wrong in the past. Um, I think for the most pay, most case, archives, libraries and museums are really like scared to admit their past. They, they, they try to act like everything's great now or they're moving towards great things, but they're still not rectifying their past. Like you can see it with the British Museum. Like um, one of my friends, uh, sh uh, she's Australian, um, Alice Proctor. She does these uncomfortable art tours mm. all around England, especially the British Museum where she basically goes like, well, that got here because of this, that's stolen. Um, that Weagle shield they won't give back. Um, so she basically, because you can get into the British Museum for free, so she can do these tours for free and they're grilla tours. And they've really got people really thinking about the British Museum and these spaces. But the British Museum will still not, they, they get all this controversy, but they still will not act on this. Like mm. they won't change. They won't, like it, it puts actually, I, we've done tours at the Australian Museum where we've talked about colonial biases in the museum. And one of the things I found that was really interesting about that is people like and trust the museum more after we've discussed the ways we've got it wrong in the past. And I think that's important. And it's just important for healing because, again, um, we're history organisations. And one of the important things about history is the fact that it, it makes how today is. I think a lot of times, again, one of the issues, like one of the things I do when we tour the um, First Australians galleries is a bit about the stolen generations. And just now I keep talking about the New South Wales Adoption Act. So kids can understand that, you know, that history is not just certain pits of the world. It's like, it's a continuation and affects how we live today. And it's also not finished. Um, that's one of my issues too, is like when we talk about history, a lot of times we um, think of, especially with, in regards to like racial progress, we act like racial progress means that's finished. Mm. Um, instead of thinking that whenever time there's racial progress, there's also racist progress. Mm. Racists figure out new ways, new strategies. Yep. 
Um, so, you know, like I always think about like the Freedom Rides 1965. I was involved in an exhibition about the 1965 Freedom Rides in 2015. And it was really cool. We got all these really cool images. But then I was thinking, one thing that we didn't address in that exhibition that I really wish that we did was to talk about the fact that Maury, Walgett, um, some of the places the Freedom Ride bus went to are still highly segregated. There may not be signs that say blacks only or whites only, but they're still segregated towns. And I think we need to have that discussion when we try to tell the truth as well. Like we can't just tell the truth off the past because I think that like stops people from doing action today of things that are still connected to that past. Yeah. I think that's a really clear point you brought up in there as well is that people actually look for this kind of truth, mm. you know, they're uncomfortable truths, but it's actually people are looking for honesty, especially with young children. You know, when you do these tours with them, I've seen you do these tours and the children are really receptive to this kind of information because this is something that they're craving. They're craving to be told the truth. They're craving honesty. And, um, I think that's a really great point there that we should finish up and before we roll into your next song. So can you tell us the song, the Soldier Sister song and why you picked it? Uh, I just think she's real deadly. Um, she's only made one album and um, right after she actually um, did a spoken word version, I think of this song or another song at a rally in the 90s and right after it, um, Bill Clinton followed her and basically said, well, that's just white racism. Let's <gasps> <So. laughs> well, put it on very loud. Yeah, put You're it just... up, put it, flare it. You're on <laughs> Right now on FBI 94.5. Man, please, 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 finna get our feet up. What? But Master Tom has been good to us. Why are we leaving? Why are we leaving now? Dead couple and even Dan Rather. Cameras and lights won't. 
Welcome back to Race Matters. We are joined by Wiradjuri man, Nathan Sentence, Mogi Wiradjuri man, Nathan Sentence. He's a First Nations curator at the Australian Museum here to talk to us today about his role at the museum and many other endeavours that he's a part of as well. Yeah, Nathan, you also have a, an amazing bo- a blog called The Archival Decolonist. Uh, what made you start this blog? Um, so basically it was starting as a rant. I felt like I didn't have enough power in museums and galleries to have these discussions. So basically I... I used to work at the State Library of New South Wales before I worked at the Australian Museum. And at both places, a lot of people used to come up to me and say, like, isn't it great that X is preserving this material because without it, this part of First Nations culture will be lost forever? And I was like, well, kind of. I was like, <laughs> I was like, my main issue with it is because we're talking about culture that's lasted for 60 to 80 to 100,000 years since time immemorial. And people think that now that they're in museums and galleries, now they're being preserved. Mm. Mm. And my other issue is like archives and museums are part of colonization. And that's the thing that's actually destroying culture the most. So, you know, museums, it might be good that museums might have, you know, these different bits of culture and now they can help with community revitalize different bits of culture that's been lost. But the reason why it's lost is because colonization and museums are here because of colonization. So we can't just pat ourselves on the back and say, aren't we great? And then gatekeep. Yeah, and gatekeep, yeah. yeah. And um, so that's why I started my blog, basically to rant that um, because I have no other avenue to do that. And then um, it's sort of like like a lot of like library and museum students were saying like, I really like this. And I was like, okay, well, I'll keep writing it. Um, also, I liked writing it because I like, I like doing my blog because there are no gatekeepers to my blog as well. Like... Mm. Um, I always talk about the fact that I was asked one time um, to write this thing about James Cook. It was just a little panel. Like, they were just trying to ask me to describe James Cook because they knew it would be, like, slightly controversial to um, have a picture of James Cook and have a little panel. And they asked me to just do a little paragraph. And all I wrote was, um, James Cook represents invasion and, um, you know, cult, like, violence to many First Nations people, something along that line. And um, I thought I was being quite soft. I was like, this is good. Like, I'm, I've kind of found a balance. <laughs> like, I, like I, I've... Um... Oh, Nathan. <laughs> and then, yeah, without um, telling me, I, when I actually saw the panel, I was like, I was going to look at the panel. I was like, I wrote that. And I looked at the panel. I was like, um, Captain James Cook represents the start of the colonial encounter to many First Nations people. And I was like, that's really soft yep. and really dishonest. And that's one thing I can... With my blog, I don't have to care. Like, mm. I, I can just say things i don't have to cater for white fragility and um or white guilt i can just say that these are the things that museums and galleries and archives are doing wrong and they should fix these things yeah and there's so many amazing insights on your blog as well things that i don't think a lot of people write enough or hear enough or yarn about enough and you have such a great way of articulating all of that and i was reading one of your um blogs where you talk about anniversaries and how we commemorate them and how anniversaries are also a massive part of whitewashing black histories and black people out of um our own memories because of you know commemoration is a form of like you know reiterating kind of reminding someone about something that has happened and 
how we commemorate things in this country is very much to the it's more pal it has to be more palatable to you know a, the demographic of white people than to First Nations people. Yeah, with that well, blog. it's like. It's like when um, we have commemorations around, you know, 1967 or 1965 Freedom Rides. Um, they'll talk about, like, Charlie Perkins and they'll be like, isn't he, a, like, they'll talk about how great he is. As they should. Of course they should. But I think one of the problems is they don't talk about the fact that he was considered radical at the time. Yeah. And I think that happens with First Nations. Like, people who are talking about issues today is they're considered radical. It's like, they're just on a continuation of trying to fight for rights. Like, you can't, like... I remember um, Colin Kirkpatrick wrote something. No. No, Ahmed Rahman. Yeah, yeah. that's him. <laughs> I know because I remember I was reading a thing and I was like, yeah, Ahmed. <laughs> yeah, because what he wrote was basically like, you can't celebrate the life of Muhammad Ali and then two months later, you know, diss Colin. Like, but people do have that dissonance. And it's also mm. a thing too with commemorations. I, one of the problems I have too is we create like hero and victim narratives. And one of the issues with that is, well, not hero victims really, like, Hero and villains, that's what I meant. Yeah. Um, with villains, the problem is um, villains weren't just really bad racist people. They were like normal people. Like, n like, like that's the thing. And that it's still the same today. Like, a lot of people will enact racism, but they will say they're not racist themselves. But that's the exact same thing people were doing back then. You know what I mean? Like, nowhere throughout history, we, we call them racist now, and even white people call them racist now, but no back then they weren't calling themselves racist you no. know what I mean like yeah. yeah that's yeah that's a very good point there and I think something that needs to be made very clear to some of our own listeners as well because <laughs> I saw um really, no, I saw something really interesting today that was saying you know like isn't it funny how out of all of the things that have happened to people of color in history and today and the only way that we can the only slur that we can come up with is white people. Mm. <laughs> that's the most offensive slur that we can come up with. Every slur that's been thrown at us mm. over time and then the one slur that we can come up with is just white people and that's the one thing that triggers things the most and calling someone a racist is now a part of that slur. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nathan, there's uh, something that we kind of touch on every episode with our guests and, uh, and usually the conversation kind of drives this way naturally anyway. But Nathan, when did you realise that there was power in your race? Um, you know, just younger, like I just realized like, cause to be honest, like I'm, I'm quite fair skinned. So I look like a lot of white people, but still there was a racial divide, you know what I mean? Like, and it was really weird to, you know, you, I like, I have the privilege of like, there's a lot of power in like light skin and there's, there's a lot of power in, um, looking like, like everyone, like the mainstream settler society. But at the same time, it was really confronting to, you know, like it's like, I even think about it like now, like the amount of racism I copped in like primary school and high school. And I was like, I'm like ridiculously fair skinned and I still would cop that level of racism. Mm. And I like, there is a lot of power though. Cause there is a lot of, we come from like, you know, generations of ancestors who fought so hard for us and um, created like pathways for us. And that's one of the things, even like my work in the museum, like um, I will try to say in some of my talks that I'm not like, the first person to say the things that I'm saying or not the best person, but I'm sort of like the person that's speaking right now. Yeah. But because really what it happened, my job has become like a bit easier because of uncles and aunties that were in this industry and outside this industry before me. So they actually made my job easier. Um, I think, yeah. 
That's beautiful. Nathan, we're running out of time. Thank you so much for joining us yeah. on the Race Matters. I think afternoon. I think that's a great finish. Yeah. Point, actually, I want to leave it there. And yeah, I'm done. My job. <laughs> Come read my blog. Where can we find your blog? Oh yeah, it's cool. It's at the archival decolon no archival decolonist.com or just Google archival decolonist or find me on Twitter at say what Nathan. Amazing. Yeah. We'll pop all the details up online as well. FBIRadio.com forward slash race matters. Nathan, thank you so much again. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. Race matters. 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 Race matters.